0: Well good morning Hamilton Baptist Church, it's great to be with you today and let me just begin by adding my congratulations I'm sure to your own, to Jonathan and Victoria on the birth of little Benjamin, that's good news, that's, that's worth celebrating. Well you know if there are two sure and certain facts in the Christian life that I'm sure have been engraved on your minds during your studies in the, the early chapters of this book of Joshua, if there are two sure and certain facts, one is that no matter what the obstacles and no matter what the opposition, that God will never give in in his great mission to move us into spiritual maturity. And the second is that the devil will never give in in terms of trying to hinder that, that same progress. Because although he he knows that the war has been won, although he knows that the victory is ours in Jesus, yet such is the nature of the devil that he will never give in in terms of his opposition towards God and towards the people of God. And this, I believe, teaches us two very important practical lessons in the Christian life. And the first is that we should never get to a place where we become complacent in our Christian life, where we think we've made it. That we've arrived, that there's no more really for us to do spiritually. We should never think like that because that's foolish in relation to God. Foolish in relation to Him. Because you see, God is out to, to make us like Jesus. That's the ultimate aim. Now, in our Christian life, as we Work with God as we give ourselves to Him, as we turn to Him, as we use the resources that He's given us in Christ, and we can make real progress. But this side of heaven, we will never become fully and wholly like Jesus. And this kind of thinking also is dangerous in regard to the devil because you see, when we get to that place, then the devil is so ready to attack us, so ready we're in a place where we're open to his attacks and there's two options that he has he can either just leave us in that state of spiritual complacency of no use to god and of no real threat to him or in that kind of spiritually deceived state he can charge in against us he can bring his full power to bear against us and he can cause us real spiritual damage as we're off guard in this kind of way. The second lesson that I believe we're taught here is that tough times spiritually, times of, of trial and times of tribulation, times when maybe the things that are coming against us seem to be unceasing and unending, when no matter what, things just keep on hitting and hitting against us, that these kind of tough times should not be seen as themselves as signs of spiritual disaster. And certainly not if, in God's strength, we are able to resist and even overcome in the face of them. In fact, quite the opposite. What we When we are being attacked like this, I think it shows us that the devil at least still thinks that we're worth attacking. It shows that there's enough going on in our life to bring his attention. And the facts are that that if we do hold on to God in the face of trial and temptation, rather than simply roll over and give up, well, these times, although they might be hard, and surely they will be hard, yet these times also can be the times of our greatest spiritual growth, our greatest spiritual gains. As it says in uh, 1 Peter 1 verse 7, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. So you see, whether we are attacked because we are spiritually inactive or spiritually active, that doesn't really matter. That doesn't really matter. No matter what the reason. What matters and what is important is that we turn to God in these times, that we trust in him. And as we do, God can use even these trials to stimulate our spiritual growth. God is able. Two important facts then and two important spiritual lessons that I I pray that you've already learned from Joshua. But if you haven't, then you're going to get another opportunity now to learn them, because these two facts and these two lessons stand at the very heart of this passage that we're going to look at together this morning. So first then, let's look first at the subtlety of Satan. For Satan's subtlety is just so so marked a feature of this whole episode, and we begin to see his subtlety, first of all, in the way that he works here on two fronts against the israelites at the same time first of all there's the the obvious there's the straightforward aggression of the kings and the peoples of canaan who are ready to to put to the one side for once their their petty differences that divide them and are ready to unite together against their one common enemy of israel and yet on the other hand satan also works here in a much more devious fashion as through the Gibeonites he seeks to infiltrate the very ranks of the people of God now neither of these I believe is a mere diversion both of them are intended to bring about the destruction of God's people and this is really an example of Satan working according to the duplicity of his nature because the Bible tells us that he is both the roaring lion who will attack us head on, and yet that he's also the cunning and the devious snake. And having said this, though, the, the effect of, of Satan working in this way can be a, a little bit, I suppose, like the the crowd who are captivated by the magician who gets them to focus on what he's doing, obviously, and flamboyantly with the one hand while failing to see what he's actually deviously doing with the other. Now, as I said already, this is not, though, I believe, the main intended effect of what the devil's doing. But certainly, it's a side effect that I'm sure that he'd be more than grateful for. But the subtlety of Satan, though, is much more clearly seen in the way he actually walks through his carefully camouflaged instruments here, the Gibeonites. For they arrived, supposedly having come and traveled from a far country, and they arrived to seek peace with Israel. And no doubt they arrived at a very strategic time, because at this point the the camp of Israel would surely be buzzing with the news that the armies of the Canaanites had united to fight against them. So at a time like this then, when they knew that they were far outnumbered, by their enemies, they're gonna to have to do battle with a far superior force. Well, what better time could there be for a, a friendly group to arrive on their doorstep? Now, to give the, the people of Israel some credit where it's due, they do at least seem to ask here all the right and routine questions. Because they know that these people might not be who they seem to be, and they also know that God had commanded them not to align themselves with any of the tribes of Canaan. Yet although they write, they ask the right questions, who are you? Where do you come from? Yet Joshua and the leaders of the people, the, the people themselves in the perilous position that they find themselves in seem only too ready to believe that the slick answers and the contrived evidence that's set before them. For in support of their their claim, the Gibeonites, that they come from a, a far land, they're, they're careful only to mention the victories of, of Israel in the in the more distant past, their victories over Heshon and Bason. But they don't mention their more recent and far greater victories over Jericho and I Ai- of course they don't mention these because they would claim that, that they'd been on the road, they'd been on their journey when these victories took place. And then to to kind of reinforce their story, their verbal statement, they, they bring visual evidence to bear. They say to them, Look at our worn out sacks. Look at our old wineskins look at our sandals worn through on the sole, look at the holes in our garments and also taste, taste our bread it's dry and mouldy, but all of these things they say were were fresh and were new when we set out on this journey and surely this is proof of how far we've travelled, how far we are from home well the Israelites who so much want to to believe what these men have said to them and believe the evidence they've got and support they want to believe it don't they because they're living surrounded by a a sea if you like of hostile enemies they're so ready to believe so ready to believe and so verse 15 tells us a treaty of peace is agreed with the Gibeonites now Let's just highlight here a couple of things just before we move on. First of all, isn't this just so typical of the devil and of the way he works, of his tactics? He he tries to crush us, he tries to destroy us. He puts us through the ringer, and we've either maybe got through this victoriously, or by God's grace we, we find ourselves still able just to, to hang on, to keep on, bear up in our circumstances. And so, because of this, because we are open and we've been open and submissive to God, so because of this, we've made real spiritual gains, maybe. We've made real progress in terms of of spiritual maturity. What does the devil, though, then do? Well, when we're maybe exhilarated because of our victory, or perhaps exhausted by the ongoing battle, then. The devil comes in from a different angle with an extra little test. And perhaps as as with the the Gibeonites here in the the case of the people of Israel, perhaps in in the light of of what we've been facing, this seems relatively trivial to us. Maybe even seems beneficial. Seems as if it was something that will relieve some of the pressure that, that we've found ourselves under. However, The problem here comes in when that something, as here in Joshua, involves an element of compromise. When what seems to be, in the short term, able to lessen our load, actually, in the long term, leads us into behaviour that is dishonouring, and brings damage to the name of our God. But secondly here, the other thing that I'd like you to notice is that that though the Gibeonites here are undoubtedly being used by the devil, that doesn't mean that they in themselves are all bad. In fact, there's evidence here in this, this passage itself that the Gibeonites have something of an emerging belief in God. For instance, in verse 9, where they say, we have heard reports of him, all that he has done, all that he did in Egypt. And then in verse 24, your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all the inhabitants from before you. And it was this this belief, at least, from the human perspective. Forget for a moment how Satan would walk in and sought to, to use this. It was this belief that led the Gibeonites to adopt this different and actually much more positive approach to Israel than the rest of their fellow Canaanites. But the fact, though, the fact that they had this crude belief in God does not mean at this point that they were a people faith, no it doesn't mean that because there's a moral dimension to true faith that their behaviour here their deceptive behaviour certainly does not give us grounds to believe that they have and yet I do believe that we can see here the beginnings of an emerging faith, a tentative stretching out towards God that has to be seen as something that's, that's laudable It's fascinating though, isn't it, the the different perspectives that we find here in in, in this one little incident. God, the devil, and men, all at work in different ways. But God, though, is the only one who sees the whole picture and who has ultimate control. We're now going to move on, though, from looking at the the subtlety of Satan to look instead at the, the stupidity of man. But where though where do we see the stupidity of man in this incident? Where do we see it? For so much of what the Israelite do seems to, to be common sense, and they seem to take almost every imaginable precaution. Because as we've noted earlier, they they questioned the, the Gibeonites when they arrived, they tested. Their, their food and surely tested also the, the, their equipment so where did they go wrong where did they go wrong well to understand this we've got to remind ourselves again of, of the context here God had commanded the people of Israel to drive out to wipe out all of the inhabitants of Canaan of their promised land and he, he told them to do this because the Canaanites were so wicked in terms of their lifestyle that they were an offence to his holiness and because he knew that if they were allowed to infiltrate his people that they could compromise their ongoing holiness as well. But here the the Israelites do compromise. They do not treat the Gibeonites as they should have. And so... God is offended in his holiness. He's offended by what they do. But again, where did they go wrong? They did seem to ask all the right questions. So what mistake did they make? Why then? Can we say that they were foolish and stupid? It's all there, I believe, in verse 14. The men of Israel sampled their provisions but they did not inquire of the Lord you see they got so caught up in their circumstances they allowed themselves to be so overruled by the common sense and by the use of their own mental abilities They basically allowed this world to so dictate to them that they did not do spiritually what God required of them, what they should have done here. They did not inquire of the Lord. They did not seek God from his word. They did not seek him in prayer. They did not open their hearts and lives to the Spirit and the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Of course here we want to say that things like circumstances and common sense are are often, very often, what are used by God in the course of of leading and guidance. Because God as well as being a, a supernatural God is also a super rational God who's very much involved in the circumstances of life, who gave us our minds so that we could think and figure things through. Yet here we must say we must never allow ourselves to get to the point where we allow those kind of things to dictate to us. Where we see these things as in any way absolute foolproof indicators of where God wants us to be going, of what God wants us to be doing in a situation. Now I believe so many of us continue to go wrong right up to today in this very same area. But for us, because the decisions we make aren't so critical as the decision Israel had to make here, well, so we can seem to get away with it. Well, they certainly didn't. The underlying problem we have, though, is exactly the same. And at some point, it will trip us up in life, as it did here, the Israelites the underlying problem and it is that in our pride in that ever recurring pride and self-sufficiency of man we are again living our life independent of God as if we are in charge as if we can decide independent of him and of course that kind of stupidity does fall right into Satan's hand Satan who's more than capable of manipulating circumstances to make the way that he wants us to go seem to be the common sense way to go and often is is so ready to Get us to that point where we're ready to cooperate with the common sense because the common sense is maybe what makes us comfortable in the here and now what makes life easier for us in the here and now but all satan wants to do is to lead us into a kind of spiritual wilderness a spiritual dead end that's what he's trying to do and ultimately to spiritual destruction but thank God as we're going to see now in our final point all Satan's plans what he has manipulated the the Gibeonites to do the stupidity of the Israelites who have cooperated with all this that this actually leads to the spiritual destruction neither of the Gibeonites or of the Israelites that's what we're going to see now as we look finally at the sovereignty of God seen here how God as he so constantly does seen and how he's able to take Satan's worst efforts man's most blatant act of, of stupidity and how he's able to take even these things and use them overrule them in his sovereign power and turn them round and use them to bring glory to his name blessing to his people how's God able to do this well of course we know that God is sovereign all-powerful and God can do whatever he wants to do and that is a fact but I believe that there is a a quality a crucial quality that we find here in the, the, the people of Israel that actually moves God to do that in this situation when he could have chosen just to bring judgment and destruction upon them. But there's something, there's a quality in the Israelites here that's really important. So so what is it? Well, it's revealed in the statement that's made by the Israelites in verse 18 and 19 once they discover the, the Gibeonite deception. And we're told there that the whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. But all the leaders answered, we have given our oath to the Lord the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. The leaders then, you see, they realised that though this oath had been tricked out of them in a deceptive way, yet still, despite that, this oath had been given in the name of the Lord. And so, although worldly and human common sense might dictate that an oath that's been manipulated in this kind of way is no longer one that we're held by. Yet, from a perspective that's influenced by the holiness of God, the faithfulness of God, the morality of God, that could never be so. The people decided. Just to demonstrate and illustrate how right the Israelites were here, a bit later, this oath was broken. It was broken by Saul. And then sometime later on from that, the people of Israel under David's rule were going through a three-year famine. And David then asked the Lord, why? Why is this happening? Why are we suffering in this way? In 2 Samuel 21 verse 1, this is the reply he received from the Lord. It is on account of Saul, and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. Israel then, I've got it right here. For their attitude shows a willingness to face up to their mistake, to acknowledge it, to see that it's theirs, to deal with it, to repent of it, and then to walk through all the results that emerge from it and then move on determined from this point to be open to God, determined to seek God, to live by his standards, to inquire of the Lord, to make sure that in future that is the way they live their life. Now you see, when when the people of God show this kind of attitude to, to their mistakes and their wrong decisions, well then God is more than ready to overrule and use them for glory and blessing. Because God, our God, really is the God of the second chance. He's the God of the third chance, the fourth chance, the fifth chance, and on and on. That is our God. And just how wonderfully we see all this working out here. in in the life of Israel and also in the experience of the Israelites. For remember that the the Gibeonites uh, were meant to infiltrate the ranks of God's people. They were meant to be a a thorn in their flesh and ultimately they were meant to, to lead them to spiritual destruction, to destroy their holiness as the people of God. But what does the Lord lead the Israelites to do with these Gibeonites? verse 21 he says let them live but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for the entire community with verse 23 adding for the house of my god now there's a, a wonderful irony here that if we read this superficially we can miss out on for remember again that the lord had wanted the israelites The Gibeonites, sorry, and the rest of the Canaanite tribes destroyed. Because, as we said, they offended his holiness and because he was afraid they would contaminate his people. And remember that the devil sent them in order to seek to achieve this very purpose. Well, here then, what God has decreed is that these same people are to be used in the ceremonies of the temple ceremonies whose main purpose is to remind the people of God of the need to be holy for they are we're told to to chop wood, that is wood for the altars on which the sacrifices designed to demonstrate holiness are to be burned and they're also to draw water water that was to be used for the special ceremonial washing that the people of God had to go through in order to prepare them for worship. So you see, here, God certainly does turn the wrong decisions made by his people to the very best advantage. But the Gibeonites, they themselves, they don't lose out here either. Although they were instruments that the devil tried to use and would have discarded once their usefulness was over he certainly would have yet at the same time there were still people who were reaching out to God people who were beginning to stretch out tentatively towards faith well how the Lord in his overruling power brings that faith here to full blossom for you see though these tasks in the temple is as woodcutters and water carriers were a humble beginning yet gradually as through their service in the temple of God they, these people were purified so they found a, a place of special religious privilege in Israel and what we find is that eventually when the land was divided up that their capital city of Gibeon that, that was given to the priestly line of Aaron And this city became a a central place, a special place, where, where God was known. And 400 years later, David put the tabernacle in Gibeon, accompanied by the altar and by the priests. And in addition to this, at least one of David's mighty men, his bodyguards, was a man of Gibeon. And a bit further on again, 500 years before the coming of Christ we find among the list of the the exiles returning from exile in Babylon some who had Gibeonite ancestry and I think this is especially important because the names of some who claimed to be Jews were not found in this registry and so they were no longer seen to be or allowed to be counted as part of the Jewish nation and what this undeniably I think illustrates is just how completely absorbed into just how assimilated and accepted by the people of God the Gibeonites had become a clear example again then a clear example once more of just how God can overrule of how God can take the devil's worst and God can take his people's worst And God can use these things if only his people are willing to turn to him, willing to face up to their mistakes, ready to repent of them, ready to open their hearts that he might work in them. God is able. God is able. And you know, exactly the same can be our experience today. No matter what wrong decisions we've made in life, no matter where we've gone wrong, no matter how many wasted years we may have in our spiritual experience. God can take all of that. God can overrule. And God is still able to use us for his glory, for our blessing, and to bless his people. If only we are ready to follow the example of the Israelites here. Now, of course, at this point, the devil's always ready to whisper in our ear he's always ready to say but that's not for you you've blown it, the mistake you made was too big a mistake the years you've wasted have been too many and you can never ever from now fulfil your potential in the Lord you can never truly please the Lord now listen to that and you'll become a frustrated disillusioned and apathetic Christian But I say to you, do not listen to it because it is a lie. It is a lie of the devil because God can take the worst things you've done. Of course, it's better if you don't do them. It's better if you learn life lessons another way. But God can take these things and God can take you. And he can use them to humble you. He can use them to mature you and to discipline you. And he can use them perhaps to give you a ministry, to reach out to others in the same place. But God can use these things. God can use the worst things. God can use you in all your weakness. And while that, what you've done maybe can't be reversed, you maybe do have to live with some of the repercussions of it, yet God can still use that and use you. He can use it to bring you closer to him. It can use it to make you more submissive. It can use it to build a more dependent faith. If only you're ready to bring that to God. If only you're ready to come to God. If only you're ready to yield to him rather than allow the devil to embitter you through the circumstances of your life. I pray that you have learned These two facts and these two lessons. And I pray that today that you will know that God is able to use you. That he's not finished with you. That he will never turn his back on you. If you turn to him, he is there. And he is ready to use you and to walk in you and through you. To bring glory and to bring blessing. Let's pray. Father, be with us as your people. Help us to trust in your sovereign power. Help us to give our lives again to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.